Good morning. I'm glad to be here, and I hope my small effort will be appreciated. Um, I will go through later what sort of got me up here, but when I started to review the Veterans Day history, I realized that the topic is far, far bigger than most people would even consider. We're really talking about casualties of war. And casualties of war have existed for, we know, probably 10,000 years. The casualties number in the millions. Now, the United States started to have casualties of war in 1750 or thereabouts with the French and Indian War, and this has continued up until the present, including Afghanistan. I do not think Afghanistan is the end. Now, <clears throat> when I looked and drilled down on Veterans Day, it's really been with us for a century. It started at the end of World War I when the armistice for that war ended it on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. And after that war, practically all allied nations celebrated the anniversary of this, especially the English-speaking nations and especially the countries associated with the British Empire. Initially, Veterans Day was called Armistice Day, but only was, the name was changed in the 50s after the Korean War. Now, in Canada, it's called Remembrance Day and is celebrated up until the present. And in Recognition of the international nature, I'm going to start with a story from Canada. This is a story about the first Veterans Day or the Remembrance Day. And it starts something like this. When the troops returned from the Great War after it was over, they would arrive on the train from Toronto in our town and they'd be wearing their full uniforms, carrying canvas ditty bags with their belongings. In a day or so, you would see them around the town wearing their uniforms. They would have lost their insignia of rank and their unit patches. In a week, they would be wearing the plaid shirts and blue pants of country working folk they kept their boots, though. You don't waste good leather. Now, when little Ozzy came back, nobody really noticed. The station master thought they'd seen him get off the train from Toronto. There was now a light on in his mother's shack down by the railway tracks. She died two years earlier. And little Ozzy was soon seen around town. He was wearing the plaid shirt and the blue pants like everybody else. He got himself a job in the little grist mill, hoisting sacks of flour and grain and doing odd jobs. Now, 
<coughs> the city council at this time decided they wanted to properly celebrate the end of the war. And they wanted to celebrate Remembrance Day, so they contacted Toronto and they ordered a fine statue of a soldier in full uniform standing at attention. There was a lot of concern because the statue did not arrive and did not arrive, but finally it arrived just before November the 11th and they were able to put it on the prepared pedestal in the Pound Square. Now, there was the statue and the day was off, the schools were out, bands were playing, banners were everywhere, and all the returned veterans gathered in front of the statue. And there was little Ozzy, front row center. Now, the acceptance speech and the sermon was being delivered by Reverend Carcross. He was a padre in the second division. And he was giving a fine sermon, but halfway through it, he just stared and he stared at little Ozzy. He stopped and he stared. Now all of this sounds interesting, but what happened a few years later was that I was a businessman and I was driving back from Toronto and I arrived again on November the 11th. And I arrived at midnight. They'd had the service that earlier, earlier that day at 11 and it was now midnight and it was dark. And when I drove through the town, my headlights picked out in the town square, two soldiers standing at attention. The first was our fine bought and paid for statue and the other was little Ozzy standing there rigidly at attention. Now he'd, they'd had the service at 11 and he'd stood there at attention all day, all afternoon and into the night. It was then I knew little Ozzy's secret, the thing he had not told anyone. His neighbors did not live in our village. Now, I have a second story, and this is with John. And I knew John, and I'm part of this story. And he's the reason I'm up here, because I think we need to know a little bit about him. John was first brought to my consulting rooms by his women, his wife, his daughter, and his granddaughter. And he was brought to me because he didn't take instructions so well. He was ornery, he was cranky, and he didn't listen to nobody for no reason, no whatever. What was his story? Well, he grew up on the south side of Chicago. In 1950, he was in the Marine Corps, and he was sent to Korea for two years. He came back. He got married. He bought a house in Alsip. He got himself a job in the Ford plant on the south side of Chicago, and he worked there for 36 years. I believe he had one to two six-packs every weekend, depending upon the day, and that was John. Now, I looked after him for 13 years, and over that time, he got old, like all of us will. And the last time I saw John, he was in my office and he couldn't live in his home anymore and arrangements had been made to send him to a nursing home in Illinois. And if you know anything about the VA, you have a thick stack of paperwork you have to get through. And I'm filling in the forms and he's across the desk from me. 
And I said to him, sort of as a joke, I said, you know, John, this is not important. You just go to this place, you get a little rehabilitation, I'm an expert in that, and you get back on your feet and you can move back to town and I'll continue to look after you, no problem at all. And John looked at me. And he said, Doc, where I'm going, there are five waiting for me. Now, months later, after he died, I was talking to her granddaughter and I told her about his last words to me. And she said, oh, he's talking about grandma and great grandpa. And I said, no, he's not. He's talking about the five men he killed in Korea. Now, I find it interesting that I'm up here talking about casualties of war and the purpose of this is to remember these situations. Um, and I've given you two stories of two men who try as they might could never forget. Now, we're going to move on. Did we distribute the? Okay. We're going to move on to Mr. Lincoln's speech. But before we stand up and recite it with me, um, I think I would like to give the background a little. Mr. Lincoln was standing on a place at Gettysburg next to Culp's Hill. And why Culp's Hill? Well, this was all fortune because in the space of a few hours, a man named John Buford saw what the hill meant. Henry Heth was shot in the head. Winifred Scott Hancock got there in time and Jubal Early was late. Now, the battle may have been a near-run thing, but it depended on these events by men that are not known today. It is also true that Mr. Lincoln was standing there next to the graves of 3,000 American war dead. And we should also remember that there was another 3,500 war dead in the fields around, and they too were American. Now, the third point is he gave this address on the 19th of November, which is only eight days after Veterans Day. Please rise as you are able, and we'll try to say Mr. Lincoln's words together if we can. Fourscore and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are we are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that this nation might live. 
It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot concentrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to attad or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us the living, rather, to, to the plenary, are dead, we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. That this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from this earth. Okay, Dick Hagelberg could not be here today. He had a personal family matter, but he, we did record his trumpet. Now we can sit. Maybe I've said too much, but now it's time to close the service. I'm going to close this by reading a poem. It was written by Siegfried Sassoon. He was in the British Army. He served two years on the Western Front in World War I. Wilfred Owen was his best friend. This poem will function for the extinguishing of the chalice. There will be no musical postlude. I knew a simple soldier boy who grinned in life in empty joy, slept soundly through the lonesome dark, and whistled early with the lark. In winter trenches, cowed and glum, with crumps and lice and lack of rum. He put a bullet through his head. No one spoke, I'm sorry, he put a bullet through his brain. No one spoke of him again. You smug-faced crowds with kindling eye who cheer when soldier lads march by, sneak home and pray you'll never know the hell where youth and laughter go. Thank you.